Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. One quick announcement this week, there are less than 10 tickets available as of right now for the upcoming in-person, first ever, you have permission, mini conference in Seattle, Washington, Saturday, March 25th. We've announced the lineup of speakers for this event now. We've got Tom Ord, Sarah Billups, all of the big five, Trip, Sari, Myron, and Sarah Lane Ritchie. We've got Tony Jones coming in and producer Josh. Kristen Tideman of recent episode fame is going to be running a panel. It's going to be awesome. And I'd love for those remaining tickets to be sold to, to fill those spots. There's a link for that event in the show notes. Also, it's a really great time to become a patron because later this month during that live event, on the patron-only Facebook page, we will be live streaming that entire event for free to patrons. We're not charging. So if you've been on the fence about becoming a patron, it might be time to pull the trigger. There's a link in the show notes. It's patreon.com slash Coke. All right, let's get into it. Are you ready for the next step? Is it time to pursue your doctorate? Northwind Theological Seminary offers a fully online doctoral program to help you move ahead. This DTM, Doctorate in Theology and Ministry, centers on issues in open and relational theology. World-renowned theologian Thomas J. Ord directs this program. You'd work directly with Dr. Ord to explore open and relational topics that interest you. As a fully online startup institution, Northwind's doctoral program is far less expensive than other programs. Scholarships are also available. As a doctoral student, you set your own pace. You can work around your personal, family, or work schedules, and you'll likely finish the degree in less than three years. The Doctorate in Theology and Ministry is co-sponsored by the Center for Open and Relational Theology, which Dr. Ord directs. You'll have access to Center's resources and get to know its community of scholars, activists, practitioners, and educators. For more information, see the seminary website or search Open and Relational Theology at Northwind. It's time to pursue your doctoral degree. Reach out to Northwind now. My name is Dan Koch, 
Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Joshua S. Porter, also known as Josh Dies. Thanks for being here with me, man. Oh, thanks for having me, man. I, I really appreciate it. So we're doing one of these worries about progressive Christianity episodes today, and we're going to find out from you if progressive Christianity is the right term for the thing that you're critiquing, but your book, Death to Deconstruction, sort of fits, broadly speaking, within of like, hey, there's something a foul in the sort of deconstruction progressive Christianity space. And so I'm curious to understand what you think that is. And I'm sure we'll have some agreements and some disagreements and we'll talk through all of those. And I always really love these conversations. So that's kind of what we're doing basically. And your background, uh, we have a, a fairly shared background in the mid two thousands. We were both in Christianity adjacent. I don't know if showbread, your band was technically a Christian band. We were one of those classic Christians in a band sure, yeah. in air quotes, right? Yep. Which I've thought I got to do something around that term. I need to make like a mini series or a documentary. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm going to play a little clip of showbread for people who have not heard your band. So this is the showbread song. I certainly know the best. I was more aware of your band than an avid listener, but I was certainly aware of showbread. And this is uh, mouth like a magazine. That song is from your 2004 album, which is called No Sir, Nihilism is Not Practical. My first question for you is, could you have named your book rather than Death to Deconstruction, something like No Sir, Deconstruction is Not Faithful? Am I, <laughs> I could have, yeah. I don't think I could have done it with any integrity. <laughs> okay, I yeah. wouldn't have been able to sleep at night. But, but yeah, thematically, I could have, sure. Yeah. Well, so let's get into that. The book is called Death to Deconstruction, as mm -hmm. I said. So what's deconstruction to you? Like, what do you mean when you use that term? Well, obviously, choosing to call your book Death to Deconstruction is not a not so subtle jab at the terminology there. Yeah. And there were conversations really early on, really, even before the book had a publisher, when I was shopping it around, there was some like, oh, well, what do you mean by deconstruction? And... And there were kind of two 
genres of pushback. One was of the what about good deconstruction variety, and mm-hmm. the other genre of pushback was more like uh, deconstruction means lots of different stuff. You know, it's not kind of localized entirely within a pop culture spiritual conversation. But my argument was then and now that, and I, you know, I addressed this within the first few pages of the book, but that deconstruction in the pop culture, or at least spiritual pop culture vernacular, has kind of become a junk drawer term that whether or not this is fair or entirely accurate, when it's wielded in journalism or by other writers or by pastors or by self-proclaimed deconstructionists, it often means the journey of usually, statistically speaking, young, white, uh, millennial, American, kind of former evangelical or post-evangelical Christians, youth group kids, people who were raised in the church, who embark on a journey to jettison most, if not all, aspects of their faith upbringing, meaning they are, you know, deconstructing the things that they've been given by the church, by pastors, by parents, that kind of thing. And um, that usually concludes in one of two things. One is deconversion, meaning, you know, I'm no longer any kind of Christian whatsoever, or maybe even no longer a theist. I'm an agnostic or atheist. Or the other alternative is kind of a quasi-progressive spirituality, if you like that terminology, that maybe takes some aspects of Jesus, usually, that the deconstructing party prefers and does away with the things that they don't prefer and kind of imbues the teaching of Jesus with other spiritualities and philosophies and to kind of create this sort of what I call a personal pan-spirituality that suits the deconstructing party's preferences. And this is something that, you know, obviously it sounds really snarky and critical. And this is what I was doing, you know, and the book is about my journey of doing those things and how I arrived where I've arrived now. So, to the pushback of... Well, there's lots of different kinds of deconstruction. Like I even talked to, you know, one guy at a publisher was like, what about literary deconstruction and what about cinematic? You know, I'm like, yes, obviously the, the context of the book and where the book will live and be sold will kind of clarify, I think, the terminology in, in that particular case. And to the other pushback, which is what about good deconstruction, I think personally, and I'm, you know, totally open to disagreement on this, but I think personally that it might be more helpful or it is more helpful for me in the conversations I'm having to just prefer different language at this point. Because, you know, when Christianity Today is running articles about the top 10 reasons people deconstruct, they mean what I've described a little while ago. So it's kind of like one of those words that's been lost to the pop culture uh, consciousness at this point. When people unpack what they mean by quote-unquote good deconstruction, it's often, not always, but it's often what I would just call spiritual formation or maturing or um, the evolution of faith. In the book, I call it the transformation of faith. And that's something that anybody who follows Jesus has to do. You you cannot simply, you know, imbibe everything that you've been given part and parcel and without any evolution or maturity of faith whatsoever. It's, it's something that's expected of the disciple of Jesus, that they'll evolve and transform their faith slowly over time. That, yeah. to me, is just part of the process of spiritual formation. And the difference, you know, in the, in the book, I use the analogy of like, one is a renovation of a house and the 
other is the demolition of a house. You, you can renovate the house in such a way that it becomes, um, in many ways, quite different, but it's still the, the same house, whereas um, deconstruction often and in the conversations I'm having and in the process through which I you know, went, went through and wrote the book does not keep the house. It kind of tears it down and builds something entirely new afterward. It sounds to me like the difference between good and bad deconstruction, uh, which good deconstruction, again, is just maturing. It's spiritual formation. It's, it's, it is a, a more gradual remodeling of the house. It sounds like the difference is the end place. That if you end up more wishy-washy, then that's the bad kind of deconstruction. And if you end up in something more like a historic Christian orthodoxy, then that's the good deconstruction. Is that unfair? Oh, no, that's fair. I mean, obviously, this is informed by my worldview as a historic Orthodox disciple of Jesus. So, Mm -hmm. I'm writing as someone who not only advocates for that, but that is my position, if you like, So, yeah, I think that's fair. I would say exactly the question that everyone who goes through this is asking is, what's true? There's some version of what's true going on. And there's other stuff mixed in. There's pain. There's hope. There's experiences, whatever. Do you give evidence or is it like a, hey, look, I'm coming from this perspective. So, that's just what this book is. You know, how do you respond to that pushback? I don't go after the roots of the core truth claims. I'm assuming that there's some kind of shared perspective, even if it's pretty distant or thin. You know, there's at least some interest in the teachings of Jesus and the meaning of the scriptures, that kind of thing. But do you think that by calling the book Death to Deconstruction that you are precluding maybe most invites to have a seat at that table with that kind of strong language that... You know, like at first glance, my first thought was, no, I'm not going to look at this book or interview this guy. And then I started thinking about it and I read a little bit about it and and recognized that it would be edifying and interesting and within the realm of what I do. But like a lot of people would be like, well, that, you know, he doesn't get it or it it seemed it can be kind of dismissive. Right. I mean, so if if the goal is a seat at the table, is that at cross purposes with like marketing, essentially, or sort of attention grabbing, you know, or whatever you want to call that? Uh, It could be. Yeah. I I guess that my answer to that would be that I would be lying if I said that that did not occur to me and that it was not brought up to me by the publishers and the, you know, the marketing teams. And, but, you know, my personal aesthetic it, it goes to that place. I mean, I, I have weathered yeah. accusations of, you know, anywhere from being provocative for the sake of provoking and nothing else and or, or things that are even more, you know, I guess, hurtful to me personally, which are like, oh, this guy's lame and out of touch. He sounds youth groupy or something like that, which is fine. And that comes more from the subtitle of the book, which is Reclaiming Faithfulness as an Act of Rebellion. People are like, oh, well, you know, Pastor Josh is talking about Christianity is rebellious. But I can't convince anyone, I can't (laughs) possibly convince anyone of this being objectively true. But I honestly don't come up with these things, these titles, or write with some kind of marketing strategy in mind, or even if I may, I know this sounds bad, but even with the reader in mind, per se, um, I do them creatively. I write the thing that I would like to read. 
both as my present self and as the person who is explored in the book, meaning, you know, the person who was in the process of deconstruction. So, you know, and that's the thing that I've been doing aesthetically for a very long time. I even do it now, you know, as a pastor and write sermons, you know, sermons that are called things like God is dead, you're next. Right. And I think that the context usually lends some kind of window into the meaning in that if anyone were to flip over the book and skim the copy on the back, they'd be like, oh, okay, well, maybe it's not exactly what I thought it was. And But I honestly mm-hmm. think that it's more interesting to write something that ruffles feathers and ends up becoming a conversation piece that it contributes to a small amount of conversational chaos, meaning that um, I've had lots of people write me so far to say like they were li- like you, they were kind of, you know, like, oh, well, never mind, I'm not interested, and make really big assumptions about the book based on the title, or, you know, the subtitle, mm-hmm. and then read it and say, oh, this was not at all what I was expecting. Usually that happens on page one, one of the book, mm-hmm. um, if not a little ways into it. It's fascinating to me that I've got angry letters from people that, and I'm shorthanding here, I don't mean to yeah. you know, uh, be dismissive or reductive, but broad strokes terms. I've, get, I've gotten letters from like what might be described as like more progressive kind of Christians that are like, this guy's a freaking conservative fundamentalist evangelical, he's, he's pretending to be one of us, you know? And then I've gotten letters and bad reviews from people who are like, this progressive guy, he's so out in left field, he's, you know, masquerading as a, an orthodox Christian, which I think is interesting. I think that that's the kind of thing that makes art interesting. The whole idea, you know, we did it with showbread and the whole music is dead thing. I'm still answering questions about music is dead. How does that make any sense? You're a band, you play music. And Mm -hmm. the title occurred to me early on. I liked it. I liked the way it sounded. I liked the idea of almost like, you know, Richard Matheson and his novel, I Am Legend, the kind of, the title is the conclusion of the book rather than an indication of the overall subject matter of the book. Mm-hmm. You read Death of Deconstruction and then open it up, and it, it feels as if it's. it takes a very long time for it to arrive at that place, at least in my story, narratively speaking. So I would call it that again, understanding that uh, the inevitability is that, you know, some people might misunderstand the title. And un- and understandably so, I'm not trying to pretend as if I had no idea that anyone would yeah, ever be You knew what you were doing, yeah. Yeah, I did. I did. I think it's safe to say from, you know, I read a little bit about like what you've been up to and talked to a couple of people. It's safe to say you are a provocateur by trade in part. That's what I have to contribute uh, artistically, mm-hmm. you know, I and I'm not saying that that's the best way to do anything or the only yeah. way to do things creatively. I feel like that's the niche I fulfill, you know, for for anyone who cares about the kinds of things that I do. Well, let me tell you, here's my biggest worry with the title actually is not about sort of the whether it matches the content or whatever. People can look at the back of the book. They can look at the synopsis on the Amazon splash page, you know, whatever. Right. Like. People can do that work, but there is a growing coterie of, honestly, as it happens, former CCM artists, sure, (laughs) Christian musicians turned writers, ostensibly thinkers. I'm thinking of Alyssa Childers and her book, Another Gospel, which was a big bestseller. I'm thinking of John Cooper from Skillet. He had that clip that went viral at a show where he's like, it's time to declare war on the deconstruction Christians. And- The sense that I get 
is that at least the title of the book, and again, maybe not the content, maybe not you, is that you're joining this group that's holding the faithful line, like defending God's fortress against young, trendy Christian movements. But what I worry about is this escalating rhetoric of essentially violence and sort of enemy conversation. You know, we we literally see it everywhere we look. If we look at partisan media and partisan news, sure, uh, and all that stuff, and and now we're seeing it in the sort of Christian publishing world. See it at the SBC. We're seeing it all over the place. And I'm not on the other side. Like I'm not saying, well, John Cooper and Alyssa Childers are my enemies because deconstruction is great, you know, and progressive Christianity is the best. I am trying to stand in the middle and go, what the fuck are we doing here? And I've invited Alyssa on. She, she's not going to come, you know, like there, there's not going to be. What about she Mr. Want... Skillet? Did you write Mr. Skillet? I'm not going to invite John Cooper on. No. <laughs> I, I'm not confident that we would have a meaningful conversation. I think I could with Alyssa and she's not going to do it. And I understand why she won't do it. It's not in her interest to do it. She is preaching to the choir and maybe 3% who might be converted to her side but she's now got a career. She's going to get speaking engagements and book contracts for 15 years. And it doesn't matter. The Zoe girl's over. And now she's got a career. And I don't mean to say that that's the only reason she wrote it. I'm not saying that. She might have written it completely for organic and authentic reasons. But now there's a machine behind it. And that machine is increasing division. And it's decreasing real conversation. And it's decreasing the chances of peacemaking, which is one of the Beatitudes from Jesus, who we're all trying to follow, although she wouldn't probably say that I'm trying to follow Jesus. So that's where we disagree. But like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, that's deeply unsettling to me. I don't, I'm not saying you play a huge part in that and that you're a central figure in this deeply upsetting, you know, moving toward a kind of faith civil war sort of horseshit. (laughs) But in my mind, it's contributing some. And I just wanted to be honest about that and give you a chance to respond. Yeah, I mean, I'll be totally honest about the fact that I was and am somewhat ignorant to some of those conversations. Like, I I was not aware of Alyssa's book, and the skillet guy has come up over and over again, I think, because... Because that clip and the and the language, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I've, you know, doing press for the book, people have been like, oh, what do you think about... And I don't mean to sound like I'm... It just sounds so pretentious. I really don't mean it like this. It's really ignorance on my part. But people are like, well, uh, what do you think about John Cooper? John Cooper, yeah. And I'm like, who's John Cooper? And they're like, the Skillet guy. And obviously, I know who Skillet is, because, you know, yeah. existed in the Christian music industry. I was like, oh, I, sure. I didn't know that this guy was doing this thing. And uh, at first they're like, oh, okay. you know, like it depends on, it's like a Rorschach test. Some people are like, are you like the skillet guy? And by that they mean like, cause that's awesome. Well, what they mean by that, can I put some language on it? Sure. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So if they're on Cooper's side, they say, are you also going to help us defend God's fortress against the creeping secularism and totally. trendy youth movements? Mm-hmm. And one way of reading the book and the press kit for the book and the whatever is, yeah, you're like, look. I'm defending historic Christian orthodoxy. And I don't know that it needs defending, at least not in the way that Alyssa and John are doing it, hmm. right? And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be careful not to accuse you of doing the same exact thing that they're doing. I don't think you are. But there's already some power in the grouping, right? Sure. I don't know. I don't know. I, if I knew more about exactly what they were saying, maybe I could sure. speak to it with more, with something intelligent to say. I've gathered based on conversations that I've had with other people that 
my book at least is somewhat dissimilar from at least uh, Mr. Skillet in that I think that he's, man, I hate to speak for this guy, but it sounds as if people understand him as being like politicized and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, your your book is certainly like doing something more nuanced than whatever his non-books are doing, Uh, you know, in terms of your critiquing things about Southern Christianity, you know, it's, he's like a f***ing general in the army is, is, is how he is choosing to come across. And that seems pretty willful on his part. And you're not doing that, right? You're, you are in some sense standing in between. And I, I think I probably like have a bigger issue with the title of your book than the content of your book. Mm-hmm. And and we can move on to talk about the content because that's what's that's interesting. But I just I had to flag it because it's something that I've been kind of watching and and kind of dismayed about. Yeah, I I wouldn't presume to know exactly where people think that I you know, fit into that larger conversation. And, you know, I have no allusions to my own popularity. I'm assuming that the Skillet guy is infinitely more well-known than I am. If if he has books, I'm sure they sell more than my book will. But if there was really, really staunch pushback or outrage, I guess, over something like the title of, of the book. And that's not what I'm hearing from you. You're just critiquing it, which is totally fine. I try and avoid outrage at all costs. Yeah, and right. I am not, and I do not currently feel outraged at all. Right. Yeah. You don't yeah. seem outraged. I'm not but, outraged. You know. <laughs> no. I recognize that you're coming from an artistic angle here. Let's talk about the content. So you, you gave us uh, a lot to work with just in your sort of defining of your terms. And we'll, we'll go from there and, and we'll see where it takes us. One question I have for you is like, I mean, I think you would agree that for a lot of people, the deconstruction process does not start as an act of choice and will. I mean, would, you, would you agree with me in saying that? That most people find themselves deconstructing, whether through an event that happens to them, a bunch of people around them are doing it, something with their family or loved ones happens. People tend to sort of find themselves. I mean, this is certainly... The listeners of my show, 98% of them, like they find themselves doing it. They don't start out by choosing to do it. Are we in agreement on that premise? Yes, and that the seeds of deconstruction come from things done to us, not things that we do. I mean, again, I don't have numbers in front of me, but experientially, the vast majority of the time, yes. And in my story as well. Yeah, okay. And, And mine. So, all right, we agree on that. So then... Where I think what we're ultimately disagreeing on, sort of if we could map out that trajectory of an individual evangelical going through deconstruction, let's just call him Johnny D, whatever. So Johnny D, you know, he doesn't start that process on purpose, right? But then at some point, it feels like like you end up using language of, well, he ends up with what he prefers versus what he doesn't prefer. And that to me sounds like we're getting to culpability, responsibility, choice. So at some point, and I wouldn't disagree with this, at some point, the person who goes Johnny D becomes responsible and they start to make decisions that affect their trajectory of their faith or of their deconstruction or reconstruction or whatever it's going to be, they become culpable, right? And what I'm wondering is if we disagree about when that culpability begins, like when does choice enter? I mean, it's, it's tough to answer this in the general, but when do you think for most of these people 
they start choosing and they start choosing wrongly effectively um, on this kind of standard path that we're seeing? Well, obviously it depends because I think that in, we both agree in that the seeds of deconstruction are planted usually when we are hurt and there's a great legitimacy to the hurt that's been done to us. I don't mean it to be mm-hmm. dismissive about religious trauma or church hurt or exposure to hypocrisy, all the things that you know I explore in depth in the book, at least in my experience, personally and anecdotally, and I guess to some sense statistically, there's a kind of a tapering off from subconscious wrestling to conscious wrestling. But even then, it's less decisive and what you describe as culpable, which is a great word, and more like, I don't know what I think anymore, or yeah. I don't know if I can think these, believe these things anymore. It's almost like, I mean, I, you know, it's just the season, but to liken it to a child wrestling with the existence of Santa Claus. Of Santa, yeah. Yeah. For most people, children, there isn't a single decisive moment like, you know, where the mythology of Santa Claus goes from true to false on a binary. It's more like there are questions that are raised as the child ages and, and they begin to see what they perceive to be holes in that process. They start asking questions. And at some point, probably make a decision whether or not that's on a single mark on a timeline, or they arrive at a place where they suddenly can say to themselves or out loud, I guess I don't really believe that Santa exists anymore. And I think that deconstruction is often, not always, but often similar in that there's kind of a haze on the timeline in that the seeds are planted, real legitimate questions are posed and asked and explored. And this is not unique to the deconstructionist. This is all disciples of Jesus across time and space. That's what I was going to say. This sounds like you're talking about what you call spiritual formation, maturing, transforming of faith, renovating the house, so to speak, right? Yes. Anyone who wants to follow Jesus has to do this. It's an inevitability. We exist in the brokenness of the world amongst other broken people. So there's going to be hurt. Some of us experience it more than others. Uh, You know, it's hard to quantify, but generally speaking. But the question is, when your mom sends you some insane Facebook thing about prophecies about (laughs) Trump returning to power... Okay. Sure. The question is like, obviously that's false, right? We all know that there are not just YouTubers accurately hearing from the Holy Spirit that Trump would be reinstated. We knew that before it failed to come about, right? Sure. I don't know if Trump still might not know it, but the rest of it, we know it. So the question is not whether there's truth to that. The question is, is that a clue to deeper truth claims and habits uh, character formation, intellectual formation, whatever, right? Is it a clue to the world from which we come that actually, oh, quite a bit more of that is bullshit than I thought it was. And that to me is really the sort of the nub of the issue for a lot of people going through this is like, because everybody will agree, yes, there are some unfortunate things. People lie. People are deceived. Sure. You know, people have bad habits of thinking, whatever, however you want to frame it. Right. But then the question is like, is, does the rot go deeper? And I think that the house metaphor is really good because, you know, it's like, do I need to tear off the drywall and see if there's black mold in here or see if there has been water dripping that has been corroding the foundation or the, the cross beams or the, whatever, the kind of thing that requires more demolition to construct a house. 
The way that I tend to think about it is a lot of that depends on what particular house you're given. And some houses have to be demolished and other houses don't. So when I talk with Tony Jones, who is on my podcast regularly, especially in the patron episodes, he grew up like mainline Protestant. And like, I actually had a listener question for him that we asked him once of like, Tony, can you list all the things that former evangelicals have had to work through that you never had to deal with? Cause they weren't a part of the construction of the house he was given. Right. And so he is still a mainline Protestant minister. He was a major leader in the emergent church movement. He's never left Christianity and he didn't have to deal with premillennial dispensationalism bullshit like I had to deal with because nobody in his circles believed that, right? So it seems to me that like the real operant variable is not the end point so much, although I, I don't think we'll totally disagree about that, but is less the end point and more the start point. How shitty is the house you were born into, to use our metaphor, versus how sturdy is it? How much was it on the sand? How much was it on the rock, to use a gospel's analogy, right? Any pushback, disagreement, whatever with that? Uh, No, not necessarily. I just, our own wiring and personality factors into this in a huge way. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like, like you, I have friends who grew up in traditions that weren't American, you know, cultural evangelical or weren't Southern Baptist, or I have friends from other countries or friends who weren't raised Christian at all and became disciples of Jesus later in life in healthy expressions of church and, and who like hear these, you know, quote unquote horror stories that I have or that other people have and go like, Oh man, good Lord. I'm glad that I didn't experience those things. Or Mm -hmm. they say, you know, they laugh and say, I don't know what you're talking about. We didn't have DC talk where we, you know, that kind of, and that wasn't a DC uh, talk's not it gets a lot worse than DC Talk. Yeah, well, that wasn't a gripe at DC Talk. I like DC Talk. I yeah. just mean that they we don't share the same cultural Christianity at yeah, all. for sure. It's fascinating to me that my experience, which I think probably most people would agree, it was not a great one being raised in, you know, kind of a Southern evangelical fundamentalist kind of culture during the 80s, satanic panic and fear and paranoia around culture and art and all that kind of thing. The stuff that used to be localized entirely on the right before it migrated to the progressive left and the, you know, censorship and all that kind of thing, moral police. And that was not a good hand <laughs> that I was dealt. Yeah, and I, you, you know, were given I was, a shitty house. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, treated poorly by a lot of, you know, the kind of linchpin figures of Christianity in my life. And because my personality is, you know, deeply contrarian by nature to a fault, this is not something I'm I'm necessarily like celebrating, oh, it makes me so cool, but I'm allergic to things that seem to me tradition for tradition's sake or homogeneity, that kind of thing irks me or, and has always ever since I was a little kid. Yeah. You're an artist. Yeah. 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 You know, it sounds so pretentious to bring, no, but to bring, you know, a little personality psychology lens into it, like you're, you're, you have an artist's personality. I imagine you are very open to new experience. I imagine your workspaces are not tidy and neat, low, <laughs> low in conscientiousness, right? You want to, you want to get out there and, and you, you want to stir shit up. I get it. I do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that l- lends itself to a certain amount of cynicism with the dominant cultural narratives and, uh, and pessimism. So, you know, like deeply pessimistic about people and things. 
And all of that is a really combustible cocktail for, you know, to use your language, the, the bad house I was given. And that means that for me, years and years and years of my life were deeply reactive to that experience. Now, I have like a sibling that works with me at the church I work with now, was in the band with me, and acknowledges all the same abuses and things. His personality is so different than mine. He's really laid back, really yeah. gracious and accommodating by nature, very kind, very amicable, and not as a put on. That's like, the, that's, he's always been that way. And he's always kind of been like, yeah, it was really bad, but you know what? This thing was good, and that taught me this, and this thing was good, and I held Mm -hmm. on to that, and I got rid of these other things. And so to me, you know, we had entirely different assessments of the same house. He was able to look at the house and be like, yeah, it's in a bad place, (laughs) but you know what? We can use this, and we can use that. And my personality looked at the house and was like, burn it, burn everything, destroy it. And let's dance on its grave and pee on it, and, you know, like, and I've met over the years, lots and lots of different people who reflect one or two, one or two of those extremes or something in between. And it took something like, you know, the, the example I use in my book is my dad, and I have this whole chapter called, you know, my father was a racist and I loved him. To understand the inherent dichotomy in people and institutions created by people in that my dad died and I was able to see all these wonderful things about my dad that have shaped the good things about me without being unrealistic or dismissive about the the ways that he was deeply broken and in what, what I would describe as sinful or, you know, like indulgent in things that were what I describe as evil, like racism. Yeah. So all of us are in some sense born into the world with a bad hand and that it sucks and it's broken and that there are people in it. But yes, some some of us get really, really bad houses and some of us get houses that aren't as bad or, or not bad in the same ways. And then our own personalities and our own unique perspectives, the ways that we've been wired and quite frankly, our own brokenness, like the way that we're bent out of shape and not so great, uh, affect the way that we perceive the house and what needs to be done to it. So... All all that to say, that was just a really long, wordy way of saying that, like, it's really, really complicated with lots and lots of variables. You might even say it's so complicated that a catchphrase like death to deconstruction doesn't really do it justice. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I wanted to do with the title, since it keeps coming up, is... uh, I wanted to create, and it worked, you haven't done this to me yet, or unless you've done it, you know, in conversation, I just didn't hear it, but I wanted to get people to really hate on the book without having read it, you know, uh, and this, this has happened a lot where even just recently I got a letter from someone who had deconstructed, read the book, had a positive reaction to the book, and was kind of surprised by the contents of the book, was listening to some podcast. Yeah. And the podcast had a review of the book that was negative, but the the podcaster had not read it, but they dedicated some, you know, length of time to take tearing it down. Mm-hmm. And somehow I got tagged in a social media exchange and this gracious reader had offered to send a copy to this uh, angry podcaster. And I was uh, you know, like the guy uh, Kramer opening the door like, "Wait, what's going on in here? Who's talking? My ears are yeah. burning." And uh, I was like, "Oh, you, you didn't like it? Did you read it?" And they were like, "No, I didn't read it." But I think I got the gist and I wasn't happy with it. 
because uh, that's kind of what happened with the conservative Christians of my upbringing. There was a, you know, like a very dismissive view of art and aesthetics. That was like, if we can take like a 30,000 foot view of the aesthetic, we don't yeah. really need to understand anything else, you know, like, and, and this happened to you know, me as a Christian musician. It's like, well, it looks like this. So it can't possibly be Christian. And now it's happening from on the other side of the aisle with a, like, no, 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 I've read the title, so I get the gist, and I hate it. Get rid of it. I, I think, you know, and maybe I'm being presumptuous, but I think maybe at least some of these folks, if not many of them, would end up reading the book and th- going, oh, okay, never mind. Well, I think we've talked about sort of maybe title incongruity in that sense. Uh, I have not read the book. I usually don't read books. I don't have time to read all the books of my guests. I try to be honest about that. I say it every once in a while on the show. I read the press kit. I read some reviews of it. I read the clips of it, um, like excerpts and stuff. But my issue is less, I think, I, I hope I've been clear, is less with the content than the sure. than the title and, and, and sort of the larger cultural context in which that sits. And I'm just trying to understand what you mean by all your terms and all of that stuff. So, And then and also some conversations with uh, people who know your work over the years. So that's what I was trying to... To do no, I get it, and 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 to be fair, like you know, I'm not comparing you to this other conversation. The funny thing about this other conversation was that the uh, gentleman in question, who was so deeply perturbed by the book, accused me that the term that he used was that it was reductive and patronizing, and uh-huh. I was like, it, it's almost as if. Uh, releasing, you know, a couple of hours of, yeah. you know, tearing down a book you haven't read is a little reductive. Isn't is it at least a little reductive? <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah, it's becoming clear. I think we're both interested in sort of standing in that gap between the two sides. You are wanting to do it as a provocateur, and I'm wanting to do it as a bridge builder and a peacemaker. Sure. Now, only one of us has the Beatitudes on our side. I will just say that. (laughs) No, but, you know, I recognize the role of artist and provocateur. Unless my timeline's off, you would have named the book long before that John Cooper clip went viral. I'm sure it was already at the publisher before that happened, or certainly if you had always had the title and you weren't aware of that clip going viral. I know you're not drawing on John Cooper's language to title your book. No, I think what you're saying is fair, and I think you bring up a great point. You are um, self-proclaimed bridge builder, peacemaker, um, and that's the role you play in this conversation. I'm, you know, I'm assuming like with the podcast and the conversations you're having on it. I guess what I would say is that you know, I think in my own life, in my vocation, I occupy several different roles, you know, and and I think I don't think of one as necessarily more important than the other. As a pastor who does sermons on the weekend, I, you know, use a different kind of vernacular and a different approach than I do as a writer, you know. But they're not entirely dissimilar. There's some mm-hmm. carryover. I think that it's a wonderful and good and a relief that there are folks doing what you're doing with your podcast. I think, obviously, personally, or I wouldn't have done it, that it's convenient that I can occupy a, a small space in what I would describe as the kingdom of God as like, I, I offer this voice. I'm not the only voice, and there's lots mm-hmm. of other different ones and probably ones that are more intelligent, sophisticated than mine, but this is the one that I have to offer. So, I'm embracing it. It took me a long time to get to that place to you know, kind of make my peace with, I think this is what I can do, you know, and and this is what I can do well, at least according to my own personal standards. So that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to do my thing and do it as well as I can with as much as integrity as I can. Mm-hmm. 
If you'd like to support the show financially, you can join the Patreon campaign at $5 a month. Last month, patrons actually got three exclusive episodes. There was a film pitch conversation with Sari Concepcion in which we got to also talk about movies and the, uh, the connection between some of the movies we love and our faith. There was a panel from Theology Beer Camp, or rather a, an opening ceremonies conversation between Trip and I that was very entertaining. And there was a Generation Gap Culture Hour with Tony and Josh. Patrons also get access to ad-free and uncut episodes of the normal feed episodes in the patron feed. You get an RSS feed link when you sign up, as well as access to the Facebook group. And this month, the Facebook group will get an exclusive free live stream of that upcoming in-person event for those who are able to watch from their own homes during the event. Uh, We're not charging tickets for the live stream. Sometimes people do that. This is just a perk for patrons. So consider signing up if you haven't yet. Patreon.com slash Dan Koch. That link is also in the show notes. All right. Back to my conversation with Josh Porter. Well, speaking of integrity, what do you do with this? So one option for this Broadly speaking, deconstruction, spiritual formation, you know, changing. I was given a bad house. I'm trying to get a better house built. Well, you could you can tell me why you found what you call historic Orthodox Christianity to be a good, solid, and true house. But someone else might say, like, all truth is God's truth. And so, therefore, I think that being maximally open to whatever the truth is, requires me to challenge whether or not historic Orthodox Christianity is in fact the best house. And isn't it convenient that I was raised in the United States? And so I'm, I'm more likely to think that Christianity is correct. And if I had been raised in Japan, I'd probably be more likely to think that Buddhism was correct. And so I need to follow that thread where it leads in a world where we all have access to Wikipedia and can travel the globe in under 24 hours. Sure. Right. Anywhere on, anywhere on earth. In some sense, it seems like maybe you're not talking about that person. Some of the language you use, like quasi-progressive spirituality, what I prefer and don't prefer, this personal pan-spirituality. I mean, it's, it's derogatory language. I think you intend it that way. Yeah. But like, is that the same? Because one of those people might might just be like, dude, there are eight major world religions. I grew up in one of them. Like, it's not a big leap to say, well, maybe mine's not the most correct. Sure. Right? So how do you respond to that? Well, the first response I would give is that I think that you can question the dominant narratives of historic Orthodox Christianity as an historic Orthodox disciple of Jesus. So participation does not entail exclusivity truth claims about or does it? We all make exclusive truth claims. I think that there are... Well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean we all do? Everyone believes in some version of objective truth. You can't functionally carry out any other worldview. Everyone believes that something is true and something else isn't. And everyone believes that it would be better if what they believe is true were also was also believed by other people. No, I don't think that's true. Let me give two examples. Okay, a political version and a religious version. Okay. Start with politics. So, okay. 
David Brooks, David French, I would include myself in this category. Ezra Klein often talks like this more on the left. There is a view of politics that says, Jonathan Haidt, that you need to have people who have different views of what works best so that you have competition for the best ideas and so that when you try something out, if it's really not working, there will be a vocal critical class that can call attention to the fact that it's not working. That way you can work your way towards something that works better. So a person in that world, David French on the right, Ezra Klein on the left, would say, here's my view. I think this is best, but I actually think it is necessary that I have the other guy as well. Sure. Because I could be wrong about things. So yeah, that's I agree not, with that. I agree so with that. So that's politics. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's take spirituality. Okay. Slash religion or comparative religion or whatever. One view that I have, and I don't know if this is quite total enough to count as a counterexample. You tell me. So my view in part is that religions exist in a cultural space with a bunch of cultural architecture that goes very deep and is very geographically bound. So people who are born in the West are born into religious traditions, the monotheistic religions, essentially, that assume the assumptions of a Western worldview. Mm -hmm. And people who are born in the East are born into religious traditions that do not assume that. They assume an Eastern view of the world. It's not so much perfection, it's balance and harmony. They're skeptical of, of a lot of big absolute claims. My view is that I fundamentally don't have access to an Eastern worldview. Therefore, I fundamentally cannot critique an Eastern religion on its own merits. I can only critique it on Western merits. Sure. Now, I might say I'm not going to become a Buddhist or a Hindu or whatever because – and I could give some, some various reasons. But one reason I can't give – is that, well, Christianity explains the world better than Hinduism does. I don't know if that's true for an Eastern person. And I don't even know that I could fully learn and articulate the differences between a Western person and an Eastern person, because some of those assumptions are so deep. They're so embodied in culture and therefore imprinted on brains at a very young age as they are forming and, and you know getting all their pathways going. So... I mean, I think I'm providing a counterexample to your claim that everybody believes that what they think is true and that everything would be better if the rest of the world agreed, essentially, that they'd be closer to truth. And I don't think I believe that. Well, what I mean by that is I don't disagree with either of your examples. At least I don't think so. It sounds like to me in the first example, you're citing a plurality of perspective, which... I think any rational person would admit, whether it's a political realm or a creative realm or like, you know, I don't know, the business world or even like leading a church, like plurality of perspective and even different kinds of voices is not only healthy, but probably necessary for decent, you know, leadership or perspective. So, yeah, what I mean by everyone has an exclusive truth claim is that you use the example of major world religions, for example, or spiritualities. They can't all be true because they all make some version of a tr- claim for the truth. You know, you, 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 I'll use Jesus since he's the guy that I'm always on about. Um, you know, Jesus has some very, very radically decisive 
claims to objective truth and that, that he's it. The words of Jesus that we have in the Gospels have him making those claims. That's yes, right. That's, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I'm I'm speaking as someone who, you know, has a historic orthodox view of the scriptures as mm-hmm. inspired and authoritative. So, as a Christian, you know, uh I believe that the claims Jesus makes are 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 pretty hardcore truth claims. If you ask uh, you know, one of my friends who's not a Christian, they will draw on truth claims from their worldviews, or at least to the degree that they'll say, well, they can't both be right. The Jesus of the Gospels can't be true alongside other, you know, you insert the blank, spiritual guru. But the the interesting thing is that, you know, statistically speaking, again, we talked earlier about how the phenomenon of what I'm calling deconstruction is localized almost entirely in America and the West and amongst a certain demographic. It kind of creates the what I think is the illusion sometimes that this is something that's happening on this incredible massive scale to all, you know, to to Christianity itself is deconstructing again the way I'm using the term. But, you know, studies done as recently as this year, earlier this year, found that the majority of Christians are in Africa, in Latin America, in Mm -hmm. Oceania. Um, The majority of those Christians are women. The majority of those Christians are in Africa. The median age is 19. So, you know, the average demographic Mm -hmm. for the global Christian is like a teenage girl in Nigeria, not the, you know, Josh on a podcast or writing a book or whatever. I know the sort of global trends and, you know, there's the secularization hypothesis, which has been operant, you know, since shortly after World War II, when Europe secularized, sort of in the aftermath of those two wars. And there's some evidence for the the secularization hypothesis that, like, as cultures get developed, they will become secular. I think that's a pretty reductive way to phrase it. Yeah, some might even call that racist, or a kind of a colonizing perspective. Um, Yeah, I mean, well, as long as you define your terms, like if you say... As GDP rises, religious identification will drop. I mean, there's nothing inherently racist about that. You could That could be true or false. Yes. Yeah. You could have theories about why, and some of those theories might be colonizing or whatever. And that still doesn't make it true, right? Like that, it doesn't make Christianity true. Like it might be the case that some of the forces that we have had here have not showed up in those other cultures yet. And- they may not show up, but if they do show up, they may yield similar effects. I'm agnostic on that question. I don't know what will happen, but I wouldn't want to place a lot of sort of my argumentative heft on the global South or the majority world holding the line. Cause I don't know, like in 300 years, will that still be true? I have no idea. And this earth is going to last for like at least 25 billion more years. So I don't, you know what I'm saying? Like, no, I, well, I wasn't trying to localize my entire argument there. What I meant yeah. by that is that there's two sides to the conversation around the global perspective on spirituality in that. I see. Yeah. Yeah. That's been asked early on. And I think it's a completely legitimate point. And I don't, you know, I think sometimes maybe people are surprised that they say, well, if you were born in this part of the world, wouldn't you just be this other worldviews? And, and I'm, maybe, yeah, I guess, maybe. Well, who's to say? Because it's, you know, theoretical. It's certainly true at a population sort of 
likelihood narrative a level sure. right yeah. we know that if a million babies are born in in japan and a million babies are born in alabama we can give a rough percentage of wh- how how many of them will become christian buddhist muslim yes you know taoist whatever yes and then maybe oh, okay over the next 20 years there's some shifts so those percentages they go up or they go down a little bit but but the idea that we agree on is that it's about the house we're given right like that's all part of we're born into a situation. I guess what I am, what I'm trying to figure out is like, it seems to me that if my primary goal is to discover the truth, mm-hmm. then I would want to be sort of radically open to evidence, which would include questioning things like quote, historic Christian orthodoxy. Now that doesn't mean that I would reject it. It just means that I would question it and it makes me skeptical of an argument or approach that sort of assumes that as the best end place. Orthodoxy as the best end place. Yeah. Like why, mm-hmm. like why assume that when I talk about being a Christian, I no longer talk about it in terms of truth claims. I think because I am, I get squeamish around this. I talk about it practically. I talk about it as a wisdom tradition that has figured out how to form people a certain way. And when I participate in living Christianly, I'm formed roughly in that way. And and that's the way I want to be formed. I think of Christianity as sufficient for a meaningful, like a deeply meaningful life that engages with the world, you know, honestly and, and whatever, but I can't go, you know what I'm saying? Like that's, that's shorter. I'm not going as far as you're going in some sense. And I don't know why I should really. Yeah. And I, so I'm not, why, why should, why do you go further than that? Well, one reason is that I think that, you know, for me personally, the quest to occupy a state of fluidity long term. Oh, I don't want fluid. To be clear, I do not want fluidity long term. Okay. I, pr- I would prefer, you talked about preference. Mm-hmm. I would prefer to be much more confident about the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, I would great. vastly prefer that, but I'm not confident about it. Sure. All right. Well, let's use that as an example then. I told this story recently, a gentleman who goes to my church, has been going to my church for years now, came up to me after a, one of the Sunday gatherings or a sermon I'd done, deeply conflicted, you know, visibly conflicted, and was wrestling and asked, can I be a Christian and not believe that Jesus came back to life, that he actually physically came back to life? Mm-hmm. And the conversation that we had, you know, was long, so I'm obviously summarizing here, but the long and short of it was like, uh, I said, if you're asking me what I think, the answer is is no. This is the core truth claim of the Christian faith. But why don't you be here? Why don't you stay here? There's room for you to explore what you think and don't think. No one's going to say, you know, like, oh, dude, you don't believe Jesus came back from the dead. You can no longer participate. I know that's not surprising, Jesus. That's just basic human dignity. But I think that there is a place for this guy to be at church and to be around other disciples of Jesus, ask the question, you know, of the, you know, if Christ is not raised, your faith is useless and you're still dead. And, you know, that whole question, the big question for him and the kind of the core tenet of all the early creeds and the writings of the earliest Christians and the New Testament. And I can still say that I think the answer is no. Um, but you're welcome to stay here and have this conversation with me. I think that there is a place for 
what I would call like a doctrine and a certain level of confidence. I don't approach, approach any of my doctrine with metaphysical certitude. I don't tell anyone like, I, you know, you know, based on experience or intellect or any other thing. And I say, I believe these things. I believe that they're true. Of course, I could be wrong. I don't think I am or else I wouldn't believe these things. But um, and some of them, you know, like you described plurality of belief amongst, you know, people with some kind of shared perspective. Some of them, like I'm totally open to being wrong on in the sense that they're theological nuances and somebody on my team right next to me believes the other thing. And uh, that's fine. I don't care. You know, like y- you help me not sound like a butthole. And other things I'm like, no, if if this is not true, then that would kind of be it, it for me. But I think that all of us want to give ourselves over to something bigger than ourselves and to share that with another group of people. Belief almost always is one of my big critiques with what you said earlier. It's kind of, I'm being, you know, derogatory about my preference, spirit, preference-based spirituality. One of my big critiques is that it can't seem to build up and maintain real community around itself long term because there is no shared standard of belief. It's, you know, you can come together in tribalism around what you're against, and there is a kind of satisfying creed to be yeah. had there. Well, that's <laughs> to pop in on that issue, like my understanding of the consensus in the social psychology of religion literature is that. Really, we're we're looking for a kind of golden mean that does not exist all that often because it seems clear, basically, like the more exclusionary, the more extreme a religious group is, the, the more work it does on behalf of its members, which as long as they're in the group, they find super meaningful. But that includes things like prejudice toward outgroup members and therefore proclivity to, to violence and, and things that are like obviously non-Christian and non-Christ-like. But like we know that that's just what religion does. It does it really well. So, so my perspective is that whatever Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth was clued in to something. Like Jesus of Nazareth was an incredibly special, unique person. At bare, at minimum, top 10 (laughs) that we know of, you know, I think that's uncontroversial claim. Whatever Jesus is clued into, like, he's actually pushing back against that a lot. He is pushing back against the tribalism of a particular form of Judaism when he says, God can raise sons of Abraham from these stones. Sure. Who the f- do you guys think you are? I like to imagine it in Joe Pesci's voice in Goodfellas or Casino. (laughs) Right? So, like... You know, and I know you, you, do you have a movie podcast? We should have, I, I should have yeah. started there to build more rapport with you. Anyway. Um, yeah. Your title sucks. Hey, what movie do you like? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it sucked. Uh, okay. But like whatever Jesus is clued into, like Jesus is also recognizing that tribalism produces bad outcomes. Like sure. Jesus is wise. And uh, the early Christian tradition uh, came upon, like it's a wisdom tradition, It might also be a metaphysically accurate religion, but it is at least a wisdom tradition where a bunch of people over time sorted out good ideas from bad ideas, things that work from things that don't work, things that form us from a certain way. And and you and I, I think, you know, John Mark Comer gives your uh, endorsement for the book. He's a big Dallas Willard guy. I'm a big Dallas Willard guy. Imagine you're in line with all that of like, spiritual formation, character formation, this stuff really matters. And and Christianity as a wisdom tradition produces that. What I am worried about is 
looking to things like the numeric or even sort of the emotional punch, the, all these good things that religious religion brings to people, which it does bring them, as evidence for the truthfulness of its claims. Because we know that if you turn those dials all the way up and you get a super unhealthy cult, it's incredibly damaging and people think it's the best thing they've ever experienced. So like we, that's, we got to be careful about that too. No, I don't disagree with that. I just, maybe, maybe where I would diverge if I do diverge is that I think that a strong shared sense of orthodoxy does not necessarily equate or become uh, exclusionary and prejudiced way of life. I agree. You know, I, and I agree. The, you know, metaphors that I like to use or anything that you'd use to draw on Dallas Willard language of, of apprenticeship, you know, the guy who comes to the karate dojo and says to the sensei, I want to learn karate, he's going to give him an orthodoxy. He's going to say, okay, well, these, this is the way you will order your life in order to be trained as an apprentice under a master. If that apprentice says to the sensei, Okay, well, I don't, I don't want all those things. I kind of want, I think these other things are also, I want some of this and I want, I want to learn ballet as well. Right. Then the sensei is going to say, that's fine, but that's not what we're doing here. You know, if you've come here, this is the standard of right belief and how we'll share it. That's an analogy. So it runs out eventually, but sure. the, you know, I think that I can give to the people of my church, for example, or the readers of my book, a perspective of orthodoxy that is maybe hardcore if you like if you you know that makes sense or or it's uh, convinced uh, orthodoxy or or what you know a friend of mine likes to call um courageous fidelity to orthodoxy that is not exclusionary and is not prejudiced uh that is open to perspective and open to conversations around other claims to the truth without compromising its own confidence I think that we've kind of been given over time two different extremes. One is that, you know, when I was a kid, it was like if you entertain any of these other beliefs, they're going to, they're like toxins that poison your own faithfulness. And you shouldn't even listen to music, let alone, you know, entertain legitimate, explicit ideas from other perspectives. They're going to mess you up. And eventually that became watered down and kind of uh, migrating over to the other extreme, which is just like, well, I mean, you know, like an idea is an idea is an idea. And what's the difference between one or the other? They're all fine. They're all good. You know, like you just pick the ones that work for you. They kind of like find your own truth and do what makes you happy. I just don't think that those are like a tenable ways to actually conduct one's life pragmatically. I think all of us live as if one thing is true and one thing is not true. And we assume that that must be the best thing at that given time. I think you're exactly right. Okay. You also, and Alyssa Childers, and John MacArthur. Actually, John MacArthur might know he's full of shit. I'm not sure. John MacArthur would hate me, or John Piper and John MacArthur are not fans of, would not be fans. They don't know I exist, but. Right. And so a person that you would see as like a wishy-washy pan-spiritualist at the moment believes that that is the most accurate picture. Yeah, I would not deny that they don't believe that. Yeah. Yeah. But so then to me it comes down to efficaciousness essentially. Because in one sense an idea is an idea is an idea and like neither you nor I nor John Piper nor in Dan Savage, the sex columnist. <laughs> none of I'm us. I'm not familiar with Dan. Uh, he's, I'm just trying to think of like a super liberal. Okay. Okay, so he's just like 
maximally sexually awakened. None of us are philosophers. And even if we were philosophers and had dug all the way down to the bedrock, there are other philosophers who would disagree with us. Sure. And this is true of apologetics. And I'm not accusing you of this. Often apologeticists will do a thing where they go, (laughs) I know, well, I'm trying to be accurate. Sure. Yeah. Where they will say like, you say, well, look at the end of the day, everybody believes something. So that puts us on a level playing field. And it's like, ah, that's a little bit of sleight of hand because what you're doing with that is you're going, so see, Jesus rose from the dead three days later. I'm not. So see, and I know you're not, I know you're not doing that, but I'm so, that move is so in my DNA. I can spot it from a mile away. And what is often implied, and again, I'm not saying by you, but by people who will use similar language, sure, is, well, we all know that like Western logic as filtered through males of good character and listening to the Holy Spirit, that like, that's really what needs to be driving the train and all these experiences and all these emotions that mostly all these women and more effeminate men are having. Now, I'm, again, I'm not accusing you of this, but I'm saying like the kind of we all have a worldview stuff can very easily be used and is often used as a way of ignoring a more complex picture. Tony just told a story the other day on one of the patron episodes where he was talking about multiple atonement theories and John Piper put his finger up and said, Tony, you should not preach. Do not give people five atonement theories. They cannot form around five atonement theories. You have to give them one. I'm sorry, John, that's fucking disingenuous. There are six atonement theories, many of them a part of historical Christian fucking orthodoxy. So there's something going on here, right? Where it's like the mechanics of what works are to some degree at odds with what is true. And I guess I took a long time to get to it, but that's sort of where I'm coming from. And a lot of the people that we might want to think as like woo woo. And I, by the way, I have a shared skepticism of woo woo spirituality, especially the Los Angeles type in particular. (laughs) I think there are other cultural things going on there that make me really distrust it. And what a lot of my deconstruction community, what they have turned into is like essentially just like sixties, Timothy Leary drug experimenters. It's not like I totally disagree with you on all that stuff. Like that's horseshit. It's been tried. It didn't work, but what really works is often reductive. I guess that's what I'm saying. And, and a lot of people who are open to something more like a personal parent spirituality, they're trying not to be reductive in service of truth. And you're right. It won't work. Their communities will not congeal the same way that your church will. That doesn't mean they're wrong. I don't know what the future is, but for me, it's somewhere in between holding the orthodox line and our communities will thrive. Numerically, they will. It does work for people. It's also dangerous. And over here not having any sort of agreed upon rubric that we can circle around and build community around. Like we take my son to church. We're trying to find a new church because I want him to have that. You should try mine over zoom. (laughs) No, we don't even have a streaming gathering. Well, sorry, you're not in in Washington. Would you add to the end of that, uh, you know, that dual paradigm there that your latter paradigm is like you said of the former also dangerous. Everything's fucking dangerous, man. Well, there I you mean, go. There you go. <laughs> everything's dangerous. Yeah, uh, I, I I think my disagreement would be inherently so. It maybe I would use language like could be, can be. 
I think, you know, the, the paradigm I give in the book is, and I know the reasons that you're allergic to this are the, probably the same. Again, I don't mean to assume, but they might be the same reasons that I'm allergic to this approach. But everyone is going to, back to Dallas Willard. Here, he'll take this for me. He's not here to defend himself. He's not on the planet to defend himself. Sadly. Uh, to d- the Dallas Willard approach is that like, we, we all choose a master. Everyone is going to choose a master and you will be the apprentice of the master. The whole spiritual formation conversation and the master apprentice paradigm is not a uniquely Christian concept. We're all becoming someone else slowly over time. And we all do that under the teaching and belief uh, in service to a master. Yeah. And like James K. Smith would say, like, it might be the mall. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But but the only thing I would change is that is, is most of us actually don't choose we are given various masters and, you know, this is the philosophy major in me of like, most of us don't climb out of the cave very far. And the challenge to being a Christian is to live as a disciple of Jesus. What I think is getting missed between you and I is that you think it's more, that's more of a straightforward proposition than I do. So that's why I lean on the practicality because that stuff has been formulated over centuries. But if I try and do the truth claims, it's just so much stickier. Well, wouldn't you also argue that orthodoxy has been formulated over centuries as well? Well, then it's not very historical. I mean, like, if you want to be the creeds and the councils and you want to do that whole thing, you know, like, which is usually what people using that terminology want to do, well, then you got to, well, how did those form? And which voices were included? And, you know, it's just like... There is a literally never-ending set of questions you could ask. That's true, I mean, yes. It's infinite. Like, I guess to bring it back to your guy, if I were the pastor mm-hmm. and the guy came up to me and said, can I be a Christian and not believe that Jesus was raised from death back to biological life? I would say, hell yeah. Join us. Take the Eucharist. Pray the rosary or whatever our prayer practices are. <laughs> you know, like learn the stories, pray the Psalms. Absolutely. How do I even know that what I mean by raised to life is what Paul meant? Like if I listen to Matthew Novenson, the the New New Testament, yeah, within the tradition, uh, Matt Novenson, New Testament scholar in Edinburgh, he writes a lot and talks about Panuma, which is this, you know, third form of like sort of physical matter that people in the first century believed in. Christians and, you know, religious people and non-religious people. It's like a Greek concept of pneuma. And Paul describes Jesus' body as being made of pneuma. It's like the stuff that the stars are made of. It's the reason that they just stay there and they don't have to eat and drink like we do and they don't move around. So just that one question, how, how should I think about pneuma? I will never have an answer to that question, Josh. I live in 2022. Paul was writing in 50 AD and I just don't have a bridge back to that. So it's, it's oversimplified. You know what I'm saying? Maybe the argument I'm making for orthodoxy is more like this. You know, you, I'm comfortable giving the guy the, you know, he's coming to me as the pastor of this particular church, by the way. So he's he's asking like, you know, what do you think as the pastor of this church? Can I be a member of this particular church is different than can I be a Christian or whatever? I get that. Yeah. Yeah, But but no, I did tell him, I, you're asking me what I think. No, you cannot be a Christian and not believe that Jesus was raised back to life. That is my perspective. You're welcome to go read and learn and and disagree with me. And even in the book and the opening arguments of the book or this kind of stage setting of the book, I make the claim, and maybe people don't believe this, but that I'm actually trying to convince 
you that these things are true. I'm giving you my perspective, my story, blah, blah, blah. And, And I've sat with people kind of desperate to pry Jesus away from what I describe as orthodoxy and, you know, like, well, can I do this and this and does it have to be this and that? And I think sometimes they're shocked when I say, it sounds like you don't want to be a Christian. You know, lots of people don't. You don't have to be. In fact, uh, according to Jesus, most people don't want to be. Yeah, but it's not so simple as that, because if they come from a tradition where that equals eternal torment, people's desires get all mucked up with their anxieties and fears. And it's, you know what I mean? That's true. Yes. But I'm talking about, if you want to take it back down to the, the pragmatic, when I get up tomorrow, should I actually talk to this guy as if he exists? Does he not exist? Is he a star? Did he come back to life? What do you mean by exist? Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, this is the thing. It's, I guess this is what I'm just saying is there is like a, we can do some work to put a bridge between the early church, the early Orthodox formulations of Christianity and ourselves. But so much has happened since then. We live in an entirely different linguistic context that is the result of, you know what I mean? I think that maybe where our biggest disagreement is, is that it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, Yeah. what, what you're saying is that because of you know, we're not in the first century and didn't experience these things and we're where we are and the culture is so divorced, we don't speak the, or read the language and we don't have the same cultural context or genres of literature, that it, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of who Jesus was, what he said, um, what he meant by those things, what the authors of scripture meant by those things, what the church mothers and fathers meant by those things, what the early writers in the Christian tradition meant by those things. We're kind of hopelessly at odds or or in an ambiguous fog of what does it all mean? We'll never really know. Close. What I would say is it is necessarily always an act of discernment with limited evidence. And some people choose to say, I'm going to leave that up to the leaders of my church and I'm going to go with what they say. I think that's a perfectly rational thing to do. We have limited amounts of time. Not everybody wants to become a scholar. And even if they were, again, there'd be a thousand scholars that disagreed with their own scholarship. I think it's totally defensible to do that. I just think that a lot of the people that we're talking about in this conversation are people for whom that's not an option for them. They can't or are not personality wise. You mean just taking it for granted what they're here to say, yeah. I'm going to defer this authority. I actually think most people would prefer to defer their hermeneutic yeah, agency faster to yeah. someone else. Yeah. And it works and it creates all these benefits for people in their lives. Like we were just watching Andor and there's a scene on this planet where this indigenous group is doing their like, every third year, huge religious festival, you know, during this celestial phenomenon. And it was so moving to me. Spoilers like, for Andor, by the way. I mean, that's not a lot of a spoiler. There is a group doing a religious ritual at one point. <laughs> in, in, in a the Star show. Wars thing. In a Star yeah, sure. Uh, it was very moving to me. Obviously, I don't believe whatever the people, the Aldanis believe about, you know. How do you I know? I mean, maybe some of it. I guess I don't know. Maybe some <laughs> of it. And there is probably, you know, if that were to be real, there would maybe be some overlap because of the structure of the universe or something like that. But the point just being like, I think it's great. I love religion. I am religious. I live a religious life. I'm raising my child to be religious. But I think that what a lot of stuff that puts pride of place on quote, historic Christian orthodoxy, end quote, in this sort of truth claim 
part of the conversation. It is choosing an arbitrary cutoff point, just like John Piper says, well, Calvin, the Calvinist version is the most compelling to me and I gotta pick one or it won't work. <laughs> and he's fucking right about that. But that doesn't mean he's right about the Calvinism. Sure. Right. So I'm trying to divorce what works from the truth claims because I think that for the type of person who tends to listen to this show, we can't help it. The truth claims dog us, not everybody, but for some of us. And so I want people to feel that they can actually just pursue the evidence around the truth claims and still be a disciple of Jesus. Join Jesus' dojo. Yeah, the Jesus dojo, yeah. Reading Eastern thinkers on the Gospels, on Jesus, who have much more of a master-apprentice model built in sure, has been really illuminating. But they would totally not agree with a lot of the truth claims of historic Christian orthodoxy, and yet they find all this beautiful and meaningful and practical stuff about being a disciple of the way of Jesus. So I just think that it's mucky at the ideas level, and that's why I'm more comfortable with the practical level of it working and turning me and my family into more the kinds of persons and family that we want to be for this world on behalf of, I think, God. No, you know, once again, I think that there's a level of agreement here in that I don't disagree that, you know, exploring nuanced ideas down throughout church history all the way back to the first century, my God, yes, the, the ideas can and do become mucky. You know, I did a graduate degree in biblical and theological studies, and I did it at on purpose at what someone might describe as a more conservative seminary. Mm-hmm. Not And by on purpose, I don't mean because I was like, ooh, you know, I want them to agree with me. I wanted them to not agree with me. I was in a place at that at when I began my those graduate studies where I leaned way more what someone might describe as theologically progressive. And I don't mean that as mm-hmm. like a loaded or political term. No, it's fine. Yep. And I'm just really, really skeptical. Again, this is not necessarily good or bad. This is just a wiring thing. I'm really, really skeptical of hearing what I already think is true all the time. It's one of the reasons I like Jesus. He says lots of stuff that I don't like, and that calls into question my way of life and the way that I would like to conduct my life. And one of the reasons that I think that the teachings of Jesus are true or good is because he provokes me. You know, he antagonizes me. So when I sat out to do these studies and and learn more about this degree in the Bible, so, you know, you're doing a lot of reading about the Bible and, and from people around the world and down throughout history. And I was intentionally drawing as much as I could when when we were given license to do so from readers kind of beyond the shelf of, of what the seminary gave us. And I thought that I would discover what would feel like to me a much wider incongruence and variety of belief. But in the end, uh, or even in in terms of the um, manuscript history of the the Bible and the New Testament, you know, like uh, I think that I had maybe even subconsciously bought into a a, a almost conspiracy-like paradigm of how the Bible came into being and how it was. Oh, that's too bad. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't understand. Is this sarcasm? I, I mean, I, oh, no. I mean, no, it's not sarcasm. I think conspiratorial thinking is just a tends to lead to poor truth outcomes. Yeah, right? yeah, like, yeah. There are conspiracies far less often than we tend to think as humans. 
Yes. So, you know, and I hadn't, I didn't consciously sit down and think, oh, this is how the Bible came. You know, like I, I yeah. think that maybe I just bits and pieces from pop culture and Dan Brown or Oprah or exactly. whatever. Exactly. Da Vinci Code and yeah, that yeah. horse shit. Yeah. And, you know, it's, and then you sit under these folks who have dedicated their women and men and people who don't look like me or come from the same place as me or same part of the world as me. Or you read from people who are studied in other traditions or parts of the world or who come from other parts of the world. And I think maybe someone could have gone through that exact same program and come away being like, oh, my God, it's an infinitely mucky. I came away thinking that the best analogy was for something like the medical community. Orthodoxy to me is like the medical community in that there is a shared kind of standard of what, you know, orthodoxy just means right belief. And there mm-hmm. are nuances about practice and there's a plurality of approaches to different things and there's general agreement. When someone comes along in the scientific community or the medical community and says, hey, I actually believe that, you know, the, you know, Windex cures the common cold or drink the bleach or something like that, then there's an immediate reaction. If it's something insane, then it's usually like, well, we already know that that's not true and we don't have to explain why we have lots and lots and lots of evidence on on why that's not true. When it's something that's a little more complex and nuanced, it goes through a process of being, you know, the, Mm -hmm. the general approaches. We'll bring it here. Let's have it be peer tested and reviewed against all the accumulated wisdom and knowledge that we have. And if it turns out that, you know, Windex cures the common cold, well, then great. That's introduced into the pantheon of, of, of medical belief. If it turns out that that's just not true, then that is becomes a medical heresy and is rejected by the community as such. But in 90% of communities that would identify as historic Christian orthodoxy, the voices of women are not taken equally as the voices of men. Oh, I don't think that you can make 90%. I mean, certainly in Africa, certainly in Latin America. I mean, numerically, this is where the Christians are. Like in in the United States of America, which is more liberal than those other countries, what percentage of churchgoers go to a church that fully ordains women? It's got to be 15%. Catholics are 30%, 35, so that's not them. So now we got 65 left. Southern Baptists are another 10 of that. So now we got 55% left. And most Pentecostals don't. Uh, mainline Protestants and Episcopals do. Those are dwindling, we both know. The entire vineyard movement is egalitarian. I don't know if you can say that. Yeah, vineyard. Yeah, it's like 3% of American Christianity, maybe. I know, but you said you said most Pentecostals. I mean... Well, I think you pick 10 Pentecostal churches at random two of them might ordain women and they do a little better than Baptists do because of the freedom of the spirit and all that. I'm just saying like there are like some pretty obvious drawbacks to some of the, what most people like, I like your medical community model. That is what I think everyone is doing all the time. It's discernment. It's best evidence. It's based on a group of peers and it's individual evidence. But does your paradigm end with the kind of truth versus heresy of the medical community? Like this is either true or it isn't true. We practice it or we don't. To the extent that the medical community identifies heresy and sort of so this will sh- kill shames you. <laughs> people. Well, I mean, obviously that's where I would say the evidence for not drinking poison is orders of magnitude stronger than the evidences for the evidence for Jesus's resurrection. It's just, we can't, we can't compare well, yeah, them. because you can drink poison right now. You can't look inside the tomb. Exactly. We just don't have access. Yeah. Well, so yeah. I like the discernment model. I, I think of wisdom traditions as 
sort of pre-scientific peer review. It's like before we have that particular mechanism that we now use for, we're all going to put it in the same language. A bunch of people are going to read it. They're going to look for holes. Like these are ways of sort of sussing out truth. And I think that wisdom traditions just did that in a sort of less formulated way over time. It's centered set versus bounded set, right? So a bounded set says anything outside of this circle is not part of this group, whatever the group is. That circle, in my opinion, Josh, and I think this bears out historically, is always moving. It's always being discerned. The whole history of the entire church, what goes in the canon? How do we understand the hypostatic union of Jesus? Go, 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 go. What about women? What about slavery? What about all these things? It's moving. I like a centered set. The center says, this is Jesus. And you could do historical Christian orthodoxy as a centered set, which says the closer you are to the middle, then then the more or less you are a part of this set. This is like mathematics language, by the way, that I got from somebody else from a long time ago on an episode of Depolarize. Anyway, so like, I, I just think that those borders shift. And if you asked the same type of people in the same, you know, heads of seminaries, pastors of big churches, the type of people you might convene for a council 100 years ago, they would think that it meant different things than it means today. And 100 years from now, they're going to think it means different things. There'll be some overlap and there'll be some disagreement. And I just think that that's the fact of the matter. It's inescapable. And so that's why I can't sink my teeth in as much to something like historic Christian orthodoxy, because my understanding is that it's not as solid as it claims to be. Oh, I, I would just, I guess that's, that's where the fundamental disagreement enters the picture. Mm-hmm. There, and even in the fundamental disagreement, there's some agreement in that yeah. I, I'm comfortable with an evolution of theological nuance within orthodoxy. You know, the way I describe it in the book is that it's like a vast countryside and that there are camps. When the camps work good, they're kind of open and people can move from freely from one to the other. They can live in the camp. You can say that, you know, I'm not reformed, but you can say you're reformed or Calvinist, mm-hmm. and but you're perfectly comfortable going down the street across the countryside and learning from someone who's yeah. um, Armenian or open or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that when the camps don't work good, that there, you know, there's barbed wire and cult language, and you don't leave the camp. We're the only ones who have it figured out. Right. But that it's a vast countryside. Now, of course, the the metaphor and the word picture implies that the countryside has some kind of of boundaries. Um, mm-hmm. I think personally, and that's that's what I'm after. That's what where my deconstruction journey concluded was in, you know, showing up to the dojo and being like, I want to learn. Karate. I don't want to tell you what karate is. I don't want you know to learn ballet mixed with kung fu and how to paint. I don't want to make it up myself. I want to give part of myself over to something bigger than myself in mm-hmm. the name of something that's ancient and holy. And for me, orthodoxy was that thing. By orthodoxy, I mean what I have found to be consistently taught as the truth down throughout the Christian tradition, which for me includes things like that, you know, Jesus was raised from the dead, the triunity of the of God, the, you know, the things that are in the creeds, the things that have been celebrated by the church mothers and fathers. And I think that mm-hmm. the problem with the you know, looking at uh, zeroing in on a timeline of church history, the the modern timeline of church history, you know, in this era and starting to poke fingers at, oh, well, which denominations or ordain women 
is that even when you do that, if you go back, um, you know, the New Testament is written almost entirely from a bottom up perspective. It's written by poor, oppressed people of color in a context that's not like ours. And it's the the early church movement, um, even in the writings of the New Testament, um, was being carried forward by women who were leaders in the church um, and who were ascribed great. Yeah, women are preaching in the book of Acts. They are, yes. For and, sure. You know, They're and pastors. Phoebe is yeah. entrusted with the doctrine of the book of Romans, which is, you know, it's a book that most pastors I know are afraid to teach. And Paul's like, Phoebe is the one who's going to carry this message to this other church. He's acting as an overseer or what I would call an elder. So even if you say like, oh, well, you know, the the these guys in America, they don't, they don't have the women teaching. And that's, that's probably true. And Africa and Latin America. And sure. South yes. Korea. But what I'm saying yeah. is that we tend to, in the deconstruction conversation, often point the finger all the way back to the scriptures in the early church movement. And we don't use these this language, but what I was doing was kind of like, oh man, these poor, sad barbarians, these dumb people of color, these poor people, like I'm so much smarter as this white affluent American dude. I know that this isn't true. This isn't true. And actually, you know what? It's more than not true. It's oppressive and it's bigoted and it's mean spirited. But to be clear, I only meant it in terms of like the borders are ill-defined. I'm not making a claim that those people are less than me or bigoted or ignorant or whatever. I'm just saying that like you and I think that the New Testament shows evidence of female pastors and elders and certainly deacons. Uh, that's like literally in the text in our English translations and uh, some of them. <laughs> Again, getting more and more nuanced. <laughs> yes, I know accurate. what you mean. Yes. Because I agree with you that there is a, um, oh, well, I was raised to think that I was on the good team, but now I realize that I was on the bad team and now I'm on the good team and they're the bad team. And so anybody, you know, and, and it can be prejudicial for sure. I'm not making that argument. But that don't you think that happens quite often, if not most of the time in the deconstruction conversation? Bro, I think that 85% of people right now in America are losing their minds on one or the other side of the sociopolitical spectrum to which church now maps very neatly onto that and theology maps very neatly on. And it's a fucking shit show. And like, we need sane voices in between. That's what I'm trying to, to instantiate. So totally the point I was making just to be clear is that the legacy of continuation, there's a problem with that because if you and I agree that the early church had women in high roles of important roles of spiritual leadership, well then how much should we trust 2000 years of magisterium that mostly ignored that and mostly silenced those voices? Like, don't we need a pretty fundamental corrective? Not, not for sort of moralistic reasons, but just accuracy reasons. If we're trying to discern God's will and most of the church has ignored functionally ignored half of the church, at least at the highest levels of sort of discernment and, and truth claims and all that stuff, then I just am not that comforted. I really resonate with your dojo example. The difference is that for me, apprenticing in the way of Jesus just cannot be primarily about the abstract truth claims because it's too messy, as I've said many times. Would you describe Jesus' claim, you know, the more radical, the the kind of quote, pull quote claims of his prefacing the resurrection of the dead, or I am, you know, the only way to the Father? The monologues in John, basically. No, those kinds of claims aren't localized entirely in John. They appear all throughout the Gospels. By abstract truth claims, do you mean the things that that I would describe as like creedal truth claims? 
you know, that Jesus is the only way to the Father, I am, you know, all that. Yes, I, I, my guess is that... So why have Jesus? Oh, I can't escape Jesus, man. I don't have a choice. But, I mean, where if you're suspicious of some of Jesus' claims as they're presented in the gospel... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you go the route of, like, uh, the text has been tampered with? Or do you go the route of he's just wrong about those things? I think of Christianity and other religions as happening in an organic fashion, happening the way that they would happen based on the experiences that people had of Jesus of Nazareth. It's not that I think that Jesus did not resurrect. It's that I don't feel confident in any of the evidence for it. And I don't even really know how to think about it. The the Panuma thing really is helpful and also further unclarifying <laughs> because it, it presents a, a, an option for how they might've thought about it for which we just don't really have a category, you know, like we can, someone can teach us what we know about the word panuma from, and we can try and get our heads around it. So if Paul thought that Jesus's body was made of the stars material, which many would claim is a super radical Claim that Paul thought that Jesus' body was made up of starma? No, it's, it, I mean, I think that that is the consensus in New Testament scholarship right now. No, no. Yeah. I would, I think I so. I would disagree. No. <laughs> no. Uh, well, you could, well, maybe I can just have you and Matt Novenson on, you guys can duke it out. But like, you don't need you know, me. You just get, yeah, just get a handful of New Testament scholars. Get someone like Dr. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project and ask him if he thought that when Paul writes in the New Testament, then uses the word pneuma, he's talking about Jesus' body is literally made up of star material. Well, that's what I'm saying. So I say star material, and we're like, well, no, but that's not right, because we think of the stars as being made of hydrogen, and like, you know what I mean? Like, that's what I'm saying, is that we lack the conceptual framework to put ourselves in their minds. But I don't think that we do. Say, like, for the pneuma view, for example, like, all ancient Near Eastern people thought of the stars as actual celestial beings and heavenly beings. This is well represented in ancient writings and the writers of, of the Old Testament and Genesis. So, if Moses wrote Genesis, then he's writing about, you know, God forming the stars, and he's using them as divine images of the invisible God. So the ancient people, the Hebrew people sure. looked at stars and actually thought of them as divine beings in the heavenly realm, which formed their paradigm for things like angels and cherubim and the divine council. And then that view uh-huh. is being imported by Paul, a Hebrew author who draws yeah. thematically from the Hebrew scriptures. But to say that that would nullify the corporeal resurrection of Jesus, to me, is like such a literary grievance against the time and place of the scriptures. And to say nothing of what it does to the rest of Paul's writing, where he explicitly says that Jesus was bodily raised in flesh and blood. But it does get you out of the resurrection conversation. I think that you're proving my larger point, which is that you and I have spent considerable time looking at this stuff and we don't agree on it. And like, that's kind of the whole thing. That's what I'm saying. But that's not news to anyone. That's, but it changes the apprenticeship conversation. So if I'm going to apprentice, I could say, I want to join your dojo. The dojo I pick is Dallas theological seminary or the Southern Baptist convention. Sure. I would rather say like, how have the various followers of Jesus practically become more like Jesus in their lives. Give me that program because I cannot in good conscience 
just choose an ideological lane. Because nor, nor I, would I, and I wouldn't recommend such a thing. To, yeah, I mean, my church but, is big on spiritual formation. It informs our entire function of how we do church. Love that. Love that. That's where we agree. I think maybe the di- the disagreement is that for me, without the maybe maybe some of what you would call abstract truth claims of Jesus, spiritual formation is a useless conversation. If I weren't a Christian, I would be a nihilist. Yeah. Uh, so that's where we totally disagree. Yeah. If I weren't a Christian, on the days I don't feel like a Christian, I'm a theist. I'm a Karen Armstrong style theist. Thumbs out there. God's out some kind of thing. No, is out there. I mean, not just, I mean, not just that most of the human population over time has been profoundly formed by their religious beliefs and practices. I have personally religious and spiritual experiences. I mean, I could just empirically, I have the kind that people describe as that. So I, I have them. Sure. And, and so that could be bullshit or it could be like in some sense, just, an outpouring of the way that brains evolved or something like that. I mean, it's possible. I'll never know the truth of that until I die. Uh, But I live as if that is real and it's connected to the most important things in my life. Like literally the deepest, most important things to me connect back to the Christian tradition. And so I really resonate with the discipleship stuff where I don't resonate is, is making that about, dogma or doctrine. Yes. I just think that for me, that's a dead end. It won't work because then I'll just, then I will just spin around. But you have doctrine and you have dogma. I mean, no, I don't. You've given me a a long set of doctrinal statements throughout the course of this conversation. You've said things about the inherent dangers of orthodoxy. Well, that's not dogma. That's I'm, I'm just pulling from like the social psych research. It seems true that these things happen. Yeah, but you can't claim with metaphysical certainty based on a few independent studies or statistics, but you believe that this thing leads to a bad outcome. That's your doctrine. Well, I just think that that's a bad definition of the word doctrine. Oh, well, that's that's the way I use it. It's what I believe is true. I don't think that's the way most people use the word doctrine. I think what they mean by that is a systematic set of beliefs from a church or denomination or something like that, that is agreed upon by a group and sort of formulated. I don't think you need church or uh, maybe group is fine in there, but you don't need church or denomination in the, and we all have doctrine. We all have belief. I still think that we all have objective truth claims. You Mm -hmm. think that the, you know, the Orthodox, or closed set paradigm is not great, dangerous, and Mm -hmm. that the volatile, militant, divisive conversations with people like John Cooper, that's bad. And you think it would be better if they conducted themselves and the conversation the way that you think is more true and and better. Wouldn't it be better for people? No, that's where I, that's where it is harder for me. And that's why I introduced the whole continuum of like, tribalism and religious belonging and, and meaning and, and value yeah, but you've because gone, there's I mean, a you, tension. You, you say it's horse crap and it's bull, and a, you know, like you make really strong statements about things that you don't think. So you think it would be better if they thought what you thought. No, I, that's not, no, that's not what I'm saying. You think it would be better if they thought something other than they thought in some cases, like, yes, like here's what I don't know for sure. I know that John Piper knows that there are alternative views to his view, but he does not act as if there are alternatives. Sure, now, on the atonement that, or whatever. On, well, on basically Calvinism, the, the main yeah. structure of his neo-Calvinist He's hardcore, theology. yeah. He's hardcore, okay. So he knows that there are alternatives. He knows that. He's told my friend, and he's smart enough to obviously know that. 
Sure. No way does he think that like Wesleyans don't exist, right? Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> okay. So then what do we make of that? So now for people who go to John Piper's church, individual people sitting in the pews, is it better for them if John Piper acknowledged the vast variety of options? I don't know if that's true. It might be better for those be individuals. Better. I think okay, it would be. I might disagree. I actually think the research is pretty strong for the value and meaning that that church is bringing to, to people like that. I don't think that that would compromise value and meaning. I think that it would amplify value and meaning. I think that in most... Um, and this is, again, anecdotal and experiential. Uh, I don't have statistics to back this up, but mm-hmm. I think it, in my own experience, and you know, I've worked at a church for a long time, I've been a pastor for a long time, and when church churches acknowledge mistakes that they've made in I mean, yeah. even low level practice, like we had to reorient the way that we do communion because we're like, oh, we you know we're reading the scriptures, we think maybe we've been doing a bad approach at this. I didn't think anything of it. I thought that that was just like, eh, big deal. We restructure the way we do communion, and people will adapt. But the amount of people that were so deeply touched by the, I've never been to a church where they acknowledged that they did this little thing that I had no totally. aspirations yeah. of like, oh, my, we're going to change, really reinvent the wheel here. It seems yeah. to me that when people are given um, within church, you know, like that, that's why I use the paradigm of the guy who was struggling with the resurrection. Like, I'm, you can be here, you can wrestle, and I'm still going to tell you what I think is true without a kind of exclusionary or Scientologist, you know, like suppressive person uh, Uh label on that. Like, it doesn't mean that we can't be friends or that you can't come here, that you can't be in a community. He is. He's in like our small groups and all that. He's having these conversations with people. We're Mm -hmm. not afraid of you. We're not afraid of those questions. I don't think God is either. And yet at the same time, I believe that this thing is true. So I guess for me, and I guess I should say, I really don't mean, uh, to me, this is, this is a fun conversation. I don't know how your readers are interpreting this. You know how like text messages always come across the (laughs) negative way. Yeah. Um, Maybe people hear, people hear that it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's fun for me. And they've listened to me have these conversations. Yeah. So they're familiar with you and they know Mm -hmm. your tone and everything. To me, I don't think it's offensive. I'm not, I don't have hurt feelings. I, I haven't meant to be hurtful or offensive to you whatsoever. No, I'm not hurt at all. Oh, great. Especially when you totally misunderstand me. No, <laughs> <laughs> That's when I'm most accommodating is when I just get people wrong. I, I hear you. I think people probably can sort of... Yeah, I guess what I meant is to say is that I don't think I'm going to convince... And and it's not really uh, honestly that important to me to be like no oh, you know like my it's the, I'm the banner for orthodoxy and I'm holding yeah. or whatever the skillet guy says or something like that or I came on this show to convince people of my perspective but I would like to say that my perspective is the Christian tradition is yes 100% replete with debate and disagreement and theological nuance ad nauseum to the point that sometimes it can be deeply spiritually conflicting to find your place within a perspective on things that really matter, not even small scale things like providence yeah. or, you know, the, the role of women in the church, that kind of thing. Yeah. Evil and suffering. Sure. Evil and suffering. Stuff. Yep. yep. And, they, and they were. They were hangups for me. It's all in the book. If you actually want to read it, it's in there. But what I did find and what I do think is there is a thread of continuity on core, what I would call doctrine, 
And I think uh, what you, you would just use a different word. It's not that you disagree with the idea of belief in general. In that case, I probably would use the word doctrine because right. it's related to the historic teachings of the church and yes. various I, denominations. Yeah, that's how I would use the word doctrine. Yeah, and that's what I that's what I consciously you know gave myself over to a creed to a code, which I think is a very rational position to take. I don't. I I get that. I, right. I think that what you've done in the realm of doctrine is not available to me for whatever set of reasons. Oh, come on. Now you grant yourself no autonomy whatsoever. No. What I mean is I, I just don't, if like, gosh, I'm, you're roping me back in. <laughs> I once talked to a Catholic priest after a service because I go to mass and I take the Eucharist and I didn't do that until a priest told me to do it. He said, I think you should start taking the Eucharist. I said, all right, you've given me the cover I need. And that was out of respect for, for Catholics and, and their tradition and sort of their beliefs around the Eucharist. I think the Eucharist should be an open table for Christians and non-Christians. I don't see any theological reason to close it personally. But I was talking with this priest and I admitted this to him and I shouldn't have. And he said, his response was what I call the magic bread response. So he said, well, if you take the Eucharist in the right state, it's spiritually uplifting. But if you take it in the wrong state, it's spiritually damaging. And I was like, is this, I mean, is this Alice in Wonderland? I mean, like this isn't, and to me, an insane belief. So <laughs> I couldn't, for instance, well, go under that. I couldn't, for instance, become sure. a Council of Trent style Catholic. I could be a Jesuit style Catholic. Sure. I get all these things, right? So there's just certain things that are not available to me. Yeah, that's a great example because, you know, I, I'm not Catholic. I'm Protestant and pastor of a Protestant church. I read from Catholic theologians almost constantly. And, you know, like especially, you know, the Ronald Rollheisers and mystic kind of Catholic I love traditions. the Catholics, man. Yeah. Yeah. I do um, love so I'm not like afraid of Catholic theology or anything like that, but I'm not a Catholic. So that obviously that puts my cards on the table mm -hmm. that I disagree to some extent with Catholic mm -hmm. theology. Maybe I can finally end with this and maybe, and maybe it'll be the, the agreement we need to really close. There's get a lot of closure. agreement. Yeah. No, I know. But you know, like yeah. for the good closure, Sure. Of the okay. For good. Yeah. Um, a professor of mine, who I think is really respectable, dude. He once attended a Christmas gathering at a local mega church, and because there was a lot of hype around it, they had the real camels in there and people coming down from the ceiling and crap. And he was disgusted. He was just just squirming in his seat at all this pageantry and the stupidity of it all. I mean, this guy's the head of the theology department at the seminary. And at the end, there was the altar call, you know, like, if you liked this, put your hand up if you want to go to heaven, which he had, you know, se severe theological issues with. And he just couldn't believe he just couldn't believe the whole thing. Disgusting. Years and years go by. Another guy comes through his classrooms, becomes a pastor and is working with him um, and to some ministry level. And they get to having a conversation. It turns out that this guy came to faith at the, the, the ridiculous megachurch gathering yeah. and his you know, like moment of clarity was like, oh my God, God is willing to work even in crappy theology. Um, Cause he didn't suddenly shift his position on the theological approach or change his uh, perspective on ministry or his critique of some of the things that were going on in this giant suburban mega church. But he acknowledged that somehow for some reason, this guy came to faith. And now this guy had a perspective. It wasn't like he went back and worked at that church or anything. He was more in line with my professor than not. I hear about the the priest that says, you know, like, if you take it in the good way, it edifies you. If you take it in the bad way, it, it hurts your the magic yeah. bread thing. I don't agree with that personally. Um, you know, we don't put a velvet rope around communion and ask people to show their 
salvation cards before they take communion or something like mm-hmm. that. But at the same time, you know, I, I understand that like, well, okay, he's probably drawn from Paul and, you know, whoever takes communion in a way that's improper drinks com- condemnation on themselves. And there's a theological perspective that does not allow for um, people that are not part of members of the church to take communion, let alone people who aren't Christians to take communion. Mm-hmm. I don't agree yep. with it personally, yeah. but I understand that it's a different perspective and that it's within the same Christian tradition. I think that, yes, there is all kinds of disagreement. And I think that, you know, if, if you want to go poking around, you can find this out for yourself. But that there's all kinds of disagreement, plurality of belief on theological nuance, but on maybe what even what you would call some of the more abstract teachings of Jesus, there has been a uniformity of agreement across traditions, across different kinds of people from all over the world, men and women um, of all ethnicities and nationalities, to which I can find a place and a thread to belong mm-hmm. that is, for me, orthodoxy, and it does not necessitate mean-spiritedness or prejudice or yeah. you know, exclusivity in terms of banishment and we can't associate with people, but it does allow for this is the code, this is what we belong to and what we're giving ourselves to, and this is the, the dojo, if you mm-hmm. like. Yeah. To, that's orthodoxy to me. I respect it. I think it's a... I think it's a defensible choice and position, and I've had a good time chatting with you, man. Which Skillet song are you going to play to sign us out? <laughs> I'll let Josh, our editor, choose. All right, Josh, <laughs> pick your favorite Skillet song and, and use it as the outro music. That's a great idea. Well, uh, Josh, thanks so much, man. Obviously, the book's called Death to Deconstruction. People can find that. The link will be in the show notes. Anywhere else people can find you? All of it exists on joshuasporter.com. Links to everything else if you want to go poking around. Great. We'll put that in the notes as well. Thanks so much, man. Yeah, dude. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Save me from this. Make it in.